I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. I say that gardeners tread a richer path, partly because of this ability that we have to see an extra layer. It's a superpower. It's like having an X-ray vision where we're able to see the workings of someone's body. We, we know things that other people don't. We see the world with an extra layer on top, or perhaps a, a layer stripped away. And that is an enriching experience. I don't claim that it's unique to gardeners. I think that were I a, an architectural historian or a person who knew anything at all about fashion, for example, I would see the world in, in another type of unique way. But my area and my love is plants and I see the world through this wonderful mesh of, of plants. We start the show today with words from gardener, writer and friend of the podcast, Ben Dark, which sets up the themes for this episode. This idea of looking, of understanding and of creating meaning out of the plants that we come across in our garden is the focus of today's show. We're zeroing in on what we can make when using flora as both our inspiration and our medium. It's all about art, where the greenery of our landscape is the lens through which we can create. And about what happens when, as Ben explains, we see the world with an extra layer on top, or perhaps a layer stripped away. First up, we'll be taking a trip to my stomping ground, the Lindley Library, where we'll get the inside story on what makes botanical art, quote-unquote, good. We're then travelling north to Kirklees in West Yorkshire, ahead of the Woven Festival, for a tutorial on growing plants to produce natural dyes. Before hearing from author and scholar Elizabeth Jane Burnett about the grounding experience of writing poetry about moss. And for all those invested in the more practical side of things, fear not, we're finishing up the show with June gardening tips from RHS Chief Horticulturist Guy Barter. And we'll be bringing you a very advice-orientated episode next week. But for now, stay tuned for an art and gardening extravaganza. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Fiona Davison. To begin... Picture vibrant, variegated petals, teeny hairs lining stems, the crisscrossing veins that embroider leaves. Sometimes the beautiful but minuscule details of plants are difficult to appreciate with the naked eye, but when captured by a botanical artist, these details are brought into sharp focus. Botanical art has been around as long as the field of botany. For many, many years it was our only way of visually depicting the flora found in the wild or cultivated in gardens. 
And still today, even in our digital, photo-obsessed world, botanical art serves a purpose. These works often depict the life cycles of plants and perfectly conjured details that help bring specimens to life, giving us a deeper understanding of not just what these plants look like, but how they evolve over time. Ahead of the annual RHS Botanical Art and Photography Show, we took a trip to the Lindley Library in London to speak with RHS curator Charlotte Brooks and the chair of the Botanical Art Judging Panel, Gillian Barlow. In the dim, temperature-controlled basement of the library, Charlotte and Gillian shared their thoughts on what makes botanical art stand out and how they go about evaluating it. My name's Charlotte Brooks and I'm the art curator here at the RHS Lindley Library in London. I'm also the secretary for the judging panel for the botanical art judges. My name's Gillian Barlow and at the moment I'm the chair of the judging panel for the botanical art show. So when you enter the Saatchi Gallery, the botanical art is in two of the three downstairs galleries and then there's photography exhibited in the third gallery. So the two rooms with botanical art will have each exhibit set out with a short description produced by the artist on their theme, on their chosen subject. And when you start to look closely, you start to get your eye in, you'll see the level of detail is absolutely exceptional. So if you're looking for tiny hairs or tiny points of attachment and different colour variations, what you might find is that the description of a plant that's perhaps an underwater plant and you get that sense of the wateriness and the light as it plays across the surface and the texture. You might see that there's a different colour variation depending on whether or not a piece of fruit is hanging in a big bunch or if it's hanging as a single piece and you'll get a sense of the character and how it grows, whether it's a clumping sort of a plant or a climbing plant. So all of these things are, are to look out for as you're going around the show, looking at the pictures in as much detail and as close observation as you can. Sometimes some exhibits stand out when there's a sort of wow factor, as people say, and other times you'll find an exhibit of tiny little flowers like the pansies, which are very small, violas, and you have to go up and really look at them carefully. When we're looking at the exhibit as a whole, we go around three times anyway to make sure we haven't just had a first impression and gone by that. But we try to avoid using words like, I like that, or I like that plant, or I don't like that. We try to keep it to more evaluative and less uh, emotional responses. And the main criteria are whether it's well presented well-drawn, well-painted, and of course, well is in itself an evaluative word, but it has to be accurately presented and every detail of the plant must be carefully realised so the whole plant joins together. And it's not just sort of scrambled together. So we're lucky enough to have a small budget in the library to be able to acquire examples of gold medal or gold standard artwork from previous shows. And I've got here three pieces out on the table for us to look at from the 2021 and 2022 shows. So we can have a little bit of a, a look at these and see what it was about those that, that brought the gold medal home for these artists. Now we're standing in front of the first artwork, which is Kleiner's Stigma Savoriana, by the Japanese artist 
Kimiko Miyahara. And this was part of a set that obviously was very, very striking, although you can't see it. It's a very interesting and lively palm, all the fruits of this palm with the leaves and things in the background, plus a little drawing of the tree, which gives you an idea of the way it grows, and some examples of the fruit. And this painting is framed as if you're looking through a window up into the canopy of the woodlands here. It's absolutely incredible because you get that real sense of being dwarfed by this much, much larger tree as you're looking up into the incredible array of colours that you find in the different fruits here. This painting reminds me of lithographic plates of the, say, the Victorian era, when there were much more dramatic botanical illustrations in many ways than we have now. And this is not old-fashioned, but it has a certain unusual look compared with other ones that we have done now, because it has this tremendous drama, like a plate in a big travel book or something. Moving on, we're now looking at a very different kind of subject. It's not exotic, it's a native British wild plant and the show was called Wet Meadow Wildflowers. They're pollinators and as food plants. So it's rather different from the dramatic nature of the other one. It's a um, more traditional classic kind of exhibit with the plant as a whole, showing all the bits of it, showing its root, its different flowers. Then at the base, it's analyzing the flowers and doing dissections of them to try to cover the whole range of this plant's development. And it's beautifully laid out and it looks rather like a book plate. So this picture is of a J.M. Rivale by Jackie Izzard, and it features the bee because it's particularly important as a pollinator, but also it feeds from the nectar of this plant as well. So we've got a beautiful picture of the bee just hanging in the center from the flower head and gives you a beautiful description of the important symbiotic relationship here between the flower and the pollinator. On the whole, we don't encourage insect life and decorative elements put in, but if the bee or the butterfly or whatever it might be is completely relevant to the topic that the person has set, then we obviously allow them. And finally, this one was by an artist who unfortunately died after producing this marvellous exhibit, which is called the rosulate viola of the Patagonian Andes. And it's completely different from anything we might think of as a viola, unless you happen to know this type of flora. It's a clump of growths which are growing together, and each one looks as if it's got a little, little coronet of violets around the edge of the leaf clump, which has leaves, little tiny leaves, looks like a cactus or an echeveria or something, which are like pangolin scales. They go round in a spiral round and round, and then the rosulate violas come round the edge of these spirals. They look like little cakes in a way. It's a very, very peaceful and calming picture, I found, we all found. This was a very favourite one of many, many people. So this is the Viola Atropurpurea by Nigel Pickering, and he painted it on the 17th of April in 2020. And for this display of his six pictures, he was awarded posthumously a gold medal and also the best botanical art exhibit for 2022. 
So here in the library, we have about 30,000 pieces of botanical art dating back from the 1630s. And we still acquire pieces of award-winning art or gold standard art today. So these three pieces that we've been talking about today were purchased from the recent shows in 2021 and 2022 as particularly interesting or outstanding examples of botanical art. So technically, the skill and the execution has, has been established by the fact that they've been awarded gold medals. But each one of these are subjects that we don't have represented in the collection. The subjects are important, both as trees are always of interest and the fruits that you find on trees, as well as wildflowers and the important message around the wildflowers, particularly in the British Isles. So here we've got a selection of three very different pictures that are used and consulted by practicing artists and emerging artists as they're on their journey learning how to complete a piece of botanical art and also as a source of inspiration for people seeking to understand more about the natural environment as well as the garden environment as well. So often artists, if they're growing their own plants, will, will have spent hours, weeks, months, years growing, understanding, sometimes failing if the weather's bad or they have a bad crop of plants, but persevering and, and really getting to know their plant in intimate detail. I think one can see in some artists' work that they have really got into the plant and they really feel a sort of kinship and others are just doing something which is more external in a way, and they don't have that particular quality that I think we're also looking for, which is very unspecific, but it's there. It's a quality that you can see, and it's to do, in my mind, with getting really inside the plant and the way it actually is and the way it speaks to the artist. Thanks there to Charlotte and Gillian. The RHS Botanical Art and Photography Show hosted in partnership with the Saatchi Gallery in London, will run from the 16th of June to the 9th of July. You can find all the details in our show notes. Although botanical art might seem like quite an old-fashioned discipline, it's actually still very relevant today. I think you can liken it to the slow cooking movement or the slow food movement. Slow looking, looking really carefully at plants, can help us understand their form, their habitat and how they grow. And I think this close scrutiny that you get with botanical art is really hard to replicate anywhere else. And as Gillian mentioned, artists prove successful in botanical art where they feel a real sort of kinship with the plant that they are rendering. When they grow their subject themselves, inspect it for hours, turn it around in their mind, almost become part of it in a way. For Elnaz Yazdani and Cherry Styles, it's much the same. Their artistic practice requires a long, intricate and thoughtful process. Elnaz and Cherry are artists and gardeners involved with Woven. Woven's a festival celebrating textiles in Kirklees in West Yorkshire. This year, they're working on the new Growing Colour Together campaign, which encourages local residents to create natural dye gardens and start dyeing clothes themselves. So this past week, we sat down with Elnaz and Cherry to get the rundown on how you can grow for pigment today. So, hi, I'm uh, Elnaz Yazdani, and I'm, I'm an embroidery artist, actually, and I've worked with Woven since 2019, but I'm now a project manager for Grain Colour Together. 
I'm Cherry Styles. I'm a visual artist and a gardener. And I'm working as one of the project artists on Growing Colour Together. So I'm working with community groups in Birkby and Fartown in Huddersfield, which is also where I live. There's a lot out there at the moment about obviously upcycling, buying secondhand, mending, you know, mend it, don't throw it in the bin. But there's also this thing of if something's faded, you know, there's this habit to kind of just get rid of it and then consume something new. So there's a bit of an initiative of diet, don't ditch it. So thinking about how can we re-dye, over-dye and work with natural materials that we might be able to source or grow in our garden, so just on our front doorstep, rather than consuming something that's been heavily chemically dyed. The production of that garment, it uses a lot of water. It isn't good for our ecosystem. And then hopefully by connecting these different ways of, of kind of approaching this method of dyeing, that we will connect up and start to kind of trickle and change people's habits out to a wider kind of level, if that makes sense. <laughs> I think one of the main key themes from managing this project, and so I do a lot of the going and visiting and observing and seeing, and, and it's the alchemy of it all. It's the magic that when you see something go into the dye pot, it's quite mundane or faded or, or whatever it is that they're, they're dying. And then when they get it out, it's that magic of like, that complete transformation of colour. One of our artists, Jane Halroyd, works a lot with woad, which is something that it almost can be identified a little bit like a weed, really. But woad can be grown across Kirklees, but it goes in green and the colour that comes out is blue. <laughs> so it's pure magic. And I think that's one of the things that I've seen captivating audiences, definitely, from what I've seen. There's lots of flowers that are fantastic for natural dyeing. Unsurprisingly, it's lots of really brightly coloured flowers and lots of things that you would maybe assume from looking at them. So things like cosmos, hollyhocks, coreopsis, dahlias and lots of wildflowers as well. So cornflowers, poppies. You can also use like kitchen waste and things like onion peels, things that you would probably be throwing in the bin. You might be throwing them in your compost heap. Even white onion skins can produce a really, really bright yellow dye. Things that maybe look like nothing special particularly, but when they're put in the dye bath, you can get some really vivid colours. One of the other things you can use for dyes actually is herbs, which is something a lot of us have growing on our windowsills, even if we don't have a garden space something that can easily be grown in pots. So lots of herbs will maybe give us more neutral or sort of muted colours, but they can be really good fun to experiment with. It can take a few years to establish a dye garden. So really what this year's call to action was about was about getting people started and getting people beginning with this idea of how you would plant a dye garden. And I think our communities have really enjoyed working with perhaps foraged material as well from the land around. And one of the things that you can dye with his nettles, for example. So I started a dye garden a couple of years ago with an, a local artist called Kaylee Davies up at the University of Huddersfield. And that was one of our first ones in response to the woven call to action. And we really looked at it in terms of an art garden. So she was very much growing things that, that we could natural dye with, like Jerry was saying, some of the some of the plants we used, like the flowers, like the cosmos and dahlias. 
but I was very much focused on that crossover between what we could use to produce art with as well. So looking at plants that you could potentially dry out to embroider with or work with in textiles in other ways. So it was really thinking about what an art garden or a botanical garden could look like and produce both for pigments, but also for decoration as well. And the two worked really well together because like you said, we could work with things like yarrow and tansy and cornflower that you could dry out, but you could also use within the dye process. But I would say starting with some quite simple flowers and thinking about like your marigolds and your dahlias as well. So a lot of flowers, if you're planting them now, you could have started planting earlier, but if you plant them now, they'll carry on flowering, some of them till kind of September time. So you could totally start planting cosmos, mm. marigolds, all sorts of things like that. The advantage now is that you could plant them straight into the ground. You don't have to start them inside, which is what a lot of us have done this year, and then move them out to the garden. The other thing is it's a good time to get to your local plants swaps as well so that my uh, marigolds didn't take too well this year so I went to my local plant swap at the allotments and got like a whole set for a pound so you don't have to spend a lot of money there are others who've probably got loads that they've sown that they want to share with you so that's the thing when you do something from seed and you've got a polytunnel or a greenhouse you end up with loads of seeds and the chances are someone else in your community can probably share or swap the plants with you to get you started. Once people know that you're interested in this and you develop a bit of a connection or a network, people start giving you pots of onion skins or they maybe weeded their allotment and they're like, oh, well, you said you could die with this. Do you want this? And throw it in a pot and see what happens. But yeah, it's about sharing and making those connections through colour and dyes and the natural land. One of the really beautiful things about natural dyeing is your outcomes will totally depend on kind of your surroundings and the seasons. And I think all of that is reflected in what comes out of the dye pot, which is a really exciting element of the process. Yeah, it's so true. And it'll be different based on the land of where, where you've grown the item as well. That's what's so interesting is that connection between the environment and where you're actually growing this produce and then what that mark or colour that's made on the fabric. I imagine it'd be very different based on the climate. So real interesting kind of threads of connection there. And I think when we really work with the seasons in a way that's totally directed by the stuff that's growing around us, it does kind of force us to slow down, to observe things and to really experiment, which oh. is a helpful reminder, whether you're an artist or not, but that's been really meaningful for me, seeing that reflected in my practice. Thanks to Elnaz Yazdani and Cherry Styles. The Woven Festival is running from the 3rd of June to the 9th of July. You can find a link to their website on our show notes, which contains details about all of their upcoming events, including planting workshops, foraging walks and allotment meetups. And now for our final story of the day. We're entering the world of poetry. Just this past month, Elizabeth Jane Burnett released Twelve Words for Moss, a beautiful tale that's quite hard to categorise. It's part memoir, part book of poetry, part natural history. But as you can probably tell from the title, the book is a deep dive into something often right below our feet, moss. So without further ado, here's Elizabeth Jane. 
Well, in the book, I travel across the country from the south up to the north and up to Scotland. And I'm looking really at mosses and really spending time with them, engaging with the mosses in a way that perhaps I wouldn't normally do in my everyday life. So really kind of seeing it as a way to spend a lot of time with, engage with them more deeply and write in response to them. I think with mosses, there is this kind of magic. And I think I was drawn to the softness of moss. I think it has a really special quality, the way it blankets the bark and the ground. And it's almost like snow in that way that it gives that kind of cushioning and that real sense of dialing down everything else in the landscape so that you can really kind of focus in and, and it gives a sense of peace certainly to me. So that's how I'd always responded to moss. And then I was drawn to it, particularly at this time, for two reasons, really. One was personal. So after the loss of my father, I was grieving, I was looking down a lot, I was looking at the floor, and I was noticing these mosses, they really kind of were jumping out at me, you know, at, at that eye level when your eyes are cast down. So there was that element. But I was also drawn to write about mosses because of the health situation, the threats that they are facing. So in the UK, 80% of peatlands are in a degraded state. And mosses are plants that decompose along with other vegetation to form peat. So when we're talking about degraded peatlands, we're also talking about damaged mosses. And so part of the focus of the book is on drawing attention to that and trying to help these plants that we overlook, I think, mostly day to day, but actually are threatened and do a lot for us, you know, not not just in evoking the sense of peace that I've talked about, but they have other qualities too. So for example, they are carbon stores. They keep the carbon that we don't want in the air, in the peatlands. They also store water and are great for filtering water. And they are homes for lots of invertebrates too. So they do a lot. So part of the writing project was really wanting to highlight their uses and how we should be protecting them at this time, I think. I think moss is quite often associated with death. And we see that in some Japanese moss gardens where it has those spiritual qualities and it grows around the dead. In the Western world, you will often see moss growing on gravestones too and over graves. But also when you start to look at moss more carefully through a microscope and you see the way that it's actually composed, it kind of adds more of a metaphorical link with death too. Certainly in sphagnum mosses, which have this kind of chainmail effect when you look at them through a lens and you can see that they have these hyaline cells, which in fact are dead at maturity. And then they are fringed by chlorophyllose cells, which are living. So you have in its very makeup, death and life together. So this is really powerful to me. And it was powerful at that time of grieving when I was writing. So having that sense of being alive and carrying on a life 
but not without loss. So how could I carry that loss with me, you know, in a way that was helpful? So thinking of myself as a body that was living, but was also surrounded by a death and how that could actually be okay. So in mourning, quite often I feel in the Western world, we are hurried through it. And there comes a time when we're just meant to be over it. And I was interested in a way that actually we could extend that period, not in a very morbid way and not in the sense of dwelling with it, but just, you know, acknowledging that, you know, my body and my life has changed now that I have this loss that I carry with me. And that doesn't mean that I'm not still a vibrant, light-giving body in the world, as mosses are. It's actually okay. And so I enjoyed that message from the mosses on that personal level, which I think that particularly from sphagnum mosses that we do get. I suppose moss has been edited out of gardens quite a lot. You know, we tend to weed moss, think of it as a weed, and I remember my grandmother sort of waging this war against moss and having to have every little bit of it out of her path. So I would suggest that you kind of think twice about that or, you know, maybe just see what it would be like to leave moss where it wants to be if it's in a place that it's not doing any harm and seeing what that offers you. You know, cultivating areas where there is A lot of moss can be nice. Creating these kind of cushioned, silent, quiet parts of your garden might be really nice. And if you could ever look at it under a microscope, again, that would create a whole different sense of these mosses, which are worlds in miniature. They really are intricately, beautifully structured, but with a simplicity too. And I think, you know, because they're around us, you know, everywhere, it's such an easy opportunity for us, you know, to spend some time with these beautiful, interesting utilitarian, hard-working plants that do show us so many things. In 12 Words for Moss, Elizabeth Jane has interspersed a number of poems throughout her lyrical prose. Each poem is dedicated to a different variety of moss, and to personalise each variety, Elizabeth Jane has given the moss a new name. Whatever spoke to her, she spent time with it. To close out this part of the show, Elizabeth Jane will read one of her favourites. This one is called Marilyn, Isothecium myosoroides, mouse tail moss. Oh furry mouse, oh feathered flounce, you catch between soft paws, you pounce. Such little wings, such tufted springs, a bounce, a bounce, a dance begins. You're a fan that spreads as heather, sprigs of heath and ostrich feather. Mousy you are not, your glamour has a sleek, seductive power. See the way your branch is lit, and how you move as though leaf tips were hips that sway. Your leaves sachet through all the woodland's darker days. Oh, you are a moss parade, a firework, a bright cascade, showering light all down your body. Who are you? You are everybody who ever had a heart on show, a vulnerability that glows in spite of who's looking. You're bold. And so I cannot call you mouse, as though I don't see brightness bursting. But if monograms must hold, we'll keep MM with different wording. 
mousetail moss can go, but welcome, Marilyn Monroe, the smoothest moving moss that lived, the lithest and the silkiest. I take a breath each time I see you, shoulders back. I try to be you, who cares if I don't quite make it? Just the strength to undertake it is enough for most, let's face it. Life can be dull and it's light escapist. What if Marilyn had had her own Marilyn for brightness? Could we be our own lightness? Thanks to Elizabeth Jane. So I know this episode has been a bit of a deviation from our normal content and our very practical gardening, but I think sometimes it's really nice to take time out and think about gardens as creative spaces and think about how they can feed that side of our personalities and stop gardening feeling too much just like outdoor housework. But of course there are still jobs that we have to do, so we don't want to leave you without a practical guide of things to do in your garden next week. So here's RHS Chief Horticulturist and my trusty co-presenter Guy Barter with some early June tasks. It's time to get planting so plants have a whole season of growing to produce good results and also to finish off sowing seeds. With the soil so warm and moist, they'll germinate quickly and emerge beautifully. Weeds enjoy early summer too. They tend to peak in June. However, if the hoe is kept moving and mulch applied to bare soil, they shouldn't be too onerous. There'll be some hand weeding to do, but that's unavoidable. It's worth leaving a bit of space for nature too. So where weeds can be tolerated, under the hedge, around the compost heap, behind the shed, They'll provide some alternative food to garden plants for garden wildlife. Time too to start pruning shrubs that are finished flowering. Evergreen ceanothus and choicer are usually cut back by about a third to keep them bushy and stimulate new growth. Deciduous shrubs like forsythia, well in this case the shoots that are finished flowering are pruned back leaving the young ones to flower next year. Containers come free too as violas and bulbs come to an end, so there's plenty of opportunity to plant tender plants like petunias. Nicotianas are one of my favourites. And also, if possible, consider annuals. California poppy, for example. They grow quickly, flower abundantly, and are relatively inexpensive. With lots of light and plenty of warmth coming, it's time to consider tender vegetables like tomatoes, cucumbers, courgettes, peppers, chilies. And if you're feeling adventurous, melons and sweet potatoes, stock up the greenhouse, any cold frames or sunny patios. This is the time to get them growing so they've got the full summer to develop and crop. And remember the birds. Fledglings have hatched now and are moving around the garden. So keep food out and the water baths filled so that there's enough for the, the birds and the young fledglings to survive. Thank you, Guy. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. It's the best way to help us share the love of gardening. Well, that's all for now. So from me, Fiona Davison, goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. 
The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.